Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. As entrepreneurs, we have a lot of preconceived notions about what the relationship with investors or VCs should be like. Uh, And typically what that means is we think it's going to be an adversarial relationship with them telling us what to do. We think it's a one-up, one-down relationship with where the VC is somehow more in control or has more power than the entrepreneur. And this create, creates all sorts of, you know, frankly, weird dynamics. It's really refreshing to talk to someone like Matt McCall. Matt is the founding partner at Forge Capital. He's been in the VC business for 28 years, has got a wealth of experience. And he's also someone who is totally committed to his personal growth as well as to the growth of the companies that he works with. So when Matt invests in a company, he also asks them to take on coaching, so to do stuff to help improve themselves. And he uh, has got a ton of resources, ideas, and frameworks for how entrepreneurs can live their best life, how they can be their best self. And so I found this a really, really fascinating conversation because it helped me shift how I think about investors and VCs in a really positive way. And this will help you also reconsider what you think about VCs or maybe challenge some of the assumptions that you have and how you as an entrepreneur can work most successfully with venture capitalists. So I hope you enjoy this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur featuring Matt McCall of Forge Capital. So Matt McCall, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Great to great to be on here. Good to see you as always, Alex. I love it. Now, Matt, you were the leader of a really impactful panel discussion at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit in Boulder in June. And it was you and uh, Tim Chang from Mayfield Fund and Lisa Mickelson from Flourish Ventures. And what was so interesting inspiring and refreshing about that conversation was how VCs work with entrepreneurs. And there's this perception out there that it's always got to be an adversarial relationship and there's always a one up and a one down uh, in the relationship. And that, you know, this is all about, we just got to be hard nosed business people and, and deliver returns. And in your talk, which was all about putting the human back into what is a human focused business, you know, I and all the other attendees, we really came away thinking, wow, there's different ways to be thinking about this. There's different ways that we can approach as entrepreneurs that we can approach working with our investors and with VCs. And it was very different from what we normally hear out there. And I know you've had so much experience in the VC world, 28 years of investing, and you've had you've backed some really interesting and successful companies. How did you come to understand that the inner work is as important 
as the outer results that are going to happen for a company? Yeah, well, so it was a couple of things that happened. Um, one is, I think what is hap- was, what's happened over the last 10 years is there's been a perspective shift. Some is generational, where the Gen Zs are, are just like, hey, this is ridiculous, right? Some of it are people just doing the work like I've done um, and coming to the conclusion that this is the logical solution. And I, can, and I can give you a couple of thoughts around some perspective shifts, uh, if that's helpful. Yeah, please. Um, let's let's uh, love to hear this. So I think the first the first shift is I think that a lot of and I've I've run this by a lot of VCs now and a lot of them have said yeah actually that's true. We believe that you know there, there's this belief that the VC is the overlord and they have governance and financial res- fiduciary responsibility and they come dropping in on the board meeting and their job is just to make sure everything's run correctly and everything's going well right. And if not, they give their advice, move to the left, move to the right, get their tuna fish sandwich, right, sit down, et cetera. That's a very erroneous perspective. We're not the overlord. We're in the desk seat in the passenger car. We're the passenger of the car. And unless we want to put our our hands on the steering wheel, the entrepreneur is driving the car that we're in and that we have a codependence with them. And the car's going 120 miles an hour down the highway, and there's a big turn ahead. So if you were in that in real life, what you would be doing is you'd be asking, did the driver get enough sleep, right? How are they feeling? Uh, do they have their A game going? Because you're looking at it's going, man, This when this blows apart, we're all toast, right? Um, I have never had a situation where, I'm trying to think through, where the, the entrepreneur was the true driver, was the driving force, and went off the reservation somehow, something happened to them, and that company did not end up just as a train wreck, right? So first of all, we realize that we are, it is us and the entrepreneur versus Darwin, not the entrepreneur thinking that they're against us and and vice versa. Second of all, whenever you have this kind of adversarial relationship like this, not as peers, but like this, they're going to filter information for approval like one might do with one's parents, right? And and so as a result, we're going to be making really important decisions based upon flawed information, right? Um, instead of saying, these are the issues, could you help me? Let's roll our sleeves up. Let's all be vulnerable here and save the company. There's going to be a lot of positioning and that eventually, that truth will eventually come out, but usually about eight months later when it's too late. Um, third is, is it a human business? All we have are human assets, right? Um, so why not focus on the human? And then the fifth one is if you look at the greatest coaches of all time, and I think that's really the best analog for a VC is kind of like a player coach of some sort. Um, if you look at Nick Saban, you look at John Wooden, who's probably the greatest coach of all time, you know, 11 NC, according to ESPN, he has, uh, 11 NCAA titles in 13 years will never be touched. And he focused on the process. He has this amazing story uh, or pro- where the, he would bring in the best of the best players. And the first five minutes, he'd have them learn to put their socks on. Like, no, no, no. I came here to like do three-point shooting and to win national titles. And, you know, and he says, no. He goes, you put the socks on so you don't get blisters in practice. 
If you get blisters, you can't go to practice. If you can't go to practice, you played poorly in the game. If you play poorly in the game, we'll never win a national title. I don't want anyone talking about unicorn, IPO, national titles. Nick Saban does the same thing. I don't want to talk about Alabama winning a national title. It, he literally calls it the process. When we practice and you're running a crossing pattern, I want you to run as hard as you can as if we're in the game, not because to, to the point you get it right, but until you can't get it wrong, right? And so I'm like, well, why don't we apply that to venture, which is focus on the input and the output takes care of itself. And the input is make the, let's elevate these entrepreneurs to be the highest version of themselves, number one. Number two, the number of times I've been in board meetings and the lion's share of the time is drama. And the board meeting could have been half an hour and it was five hours, right? And there are unsaids and poor commitments. And we'll talk about, you know, all, you know the constitution group and all these other kinds of modalities. So you put all of that together in 30 years in the venture business. And they just, I kind of had this moment about 10, 12 years ago where I thought, well, one, I want to have a more authentic relationship where I'm a true partner. What I say is I have, I have two identities with my, my CEOs. One is as a guide, right? To share both what I've learned on the venture side as well, the coaching side as well as the wisdom side. And the third is I'm a safe harbor. I want you to know that there's someone in there. We're going to have conversations like, no, you can't go to bed with a chocolate chip cookie. Like that, you know, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? But on the other hand, I want them to know that I will walk through walls for them because we have a mutual dependency in there. And, and let's be honest, they're heroes. Entrepreneurs are heroes at the end of the day. And, and the only reason why when they're driving that car, you know, VCs can, we're blindfolding him, we're scaring him, we're punking him, we're doing all kinds of things. And the only reason the cars and crashes are so damn heroic, right? Even with us doing all that to them, right? And so I thought, well, how about like get him some water and maybe some chips and do a rest break or something, you know, make sure they're the best driver possible. And it was a long-winded way, way of saying, um, I think it makes practical sense. It makes rational sense. I just think it's not easy to do it that way. And so people are much more likely to say, I'm going to invest in 10 companies. I'll have a portfolio. And if you don't work, we'll just replace you. But I think those days are over. Yeah, we'll go to our, we'll go to our defaults, won't we? So the default is I'm going to play the role of a VC. You play the role of an entrepreneur. And, you know, we have a sense of how that dynamic is going to play out. And we're never going to really show up and be authentic and vulnerable or ask uncomfortable questions. We're simply going to default into those, uh, into those roles that we might be playing. And we're just going to pick right, right? So, yeah. And so, so, uh, I'm, Interested to hear your thoughts on this. You've done a ton of personal work yourself. I know this from what we've chatted about before. And you're obviously really committed to your growth personally and to that of the entrepreneurs with whom you work. Do you ever come across situations where you're sort of farther along and then you're dragging them with you and you know, you're, you're sort of having to explain how all this stuff works? What's the, what's the level of the average entrepreneur that you're that you're working with, or is that part of your selection criteria and one of the things you're qualifying on? So Forge is a very interesting model in that every, almost every single check I write has a coaching contract with it. I also don't take board seats, so I'm not going to be in a fiduciary role. Um, 
And my goal really is to be the, the guide and safe harbor in the, in the boardrooms for them um, and have conversations. Um, yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm 600 books of wisdom and 10 coaching platforms. I'm, you know, so I'm guessing that I've done every assessment test under the sun. I, I mean, I now need an, I, I need an intervention at this point. But uh, Jerry, I think Jerry Colonna was the one who, who said it best to me. He said, Matt, save yourself and let everyone watch, right? Um, and we can talk a little bit about my journey and why I, I'm so dedicated to this. Um, but um, I, I don't think the entrepreneurs, either because of age or just because of time commitment, have probably done as much work. So I would assume that um, at least I can bring some value as a guide. Um, and I would say, by the way, one last thing is if I did this 12, 15 years ago, I think people would scratch their head and kind of look at me like, why are we doing this stuff? Um, it's almost 100% hit rate. I think everyone knows that the, the they were sold the matrix, that they took the blue pill instead of the red pill, um, and they know there's a better way. And the time is now. Time is now. It, it's happening. It's happening now. Yeah. Now, a quick question that I want to get into your journey. When you, when you, uh, uh, invest as part of forge and a coaching contract comes along with that, are you doing the coaching or, or are you relying on, uh, someone else to do that? So I am doing, uh, versions of coaching. I am, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about, uh, cause I've, I, I know a lot of very good CLG coaches and reboot coaches and other resources. Um, uh, but I do monthly, like if you look at my engagements with my entrepreneurs, um, I've got one this afternoon. Um, every month we sit down and we go through literally all of the coaching tools, a family of origin, Enneagrams, strength assessments, culture exercises, what's your values, where are your strengths, everything that I would do as a, a traditional coach, I do as a VC, but I do it from the perspective of making them the highest version of themselves so we can uh, have the best success with the company. What's and, your enneagram? Uh, uh, I am a three slash seven. So okay. um, the three is what got me into trouble um, overachieving. So the achieve uh, the achiever is the three. Yeah, the, that yeah. and the seven is the visionary. Got it. I'm a myself. I'm a five. Uh, oh my. So I'm an investigator. Yeah, yeah. Data, data, uh, data. Yeah. Now tell me. So tell me. You know. What is it that makes you so committed to this? How did you get here? And how did you decide that this is what I'm going to do? Let's, um, so I, in my household growing up, there were two factors that influenced me very heavily. Uh, the first was my mom actually was at Sarah Lawrence when Joseph Campbell was teaching. So the hero's journey was, uh, was the language you used in our household. Um, we watched the Bill Moyers interviews, all of that. And let's be honest, entrepreneurship, the entrepreneur's journey is the hero's journey. Um, and so I, you know, I, I became very well versed in all the steps. The second thing that happened is just uh, mom got pregnant, dad got cancer. By the time I was eight months old, he'd passed away. We left New York and I grew up in La Jolla with one of the most brilliant women I've ever met in my life, photographic memory, but Society said, your job is going to be raise a woman, uh, raise this little boy here. Um, and so I knew that she would be happy when I succeeded. And so starting in third grade with honor roll, I went hard after the blue ribbons. Um, 
you know, I didn't get one varsity letter. I got 11. I didn't get one department prize. I got four, five, history twice. You know, it was always the top school, the top this, top whatever. Um, and that's what I call the blue ribbon addiction system. I learned very early on that I would get approval and I would get success in life if um, I was on the hedonic treadmill. Problem with every addiction system is it gets more and more exponential with each win. It's one thing if you're one of three million soccer players getting a participation prize. It's another thing if you're trying to be, you know, a top 100 VC or whatever it happens to be. It starts to get in and there's a luck factor to that. But if your happiness is dictated upon that. And the other thing that is interesting is on that curve are nodes when you achieve in between those nodes, you're not happy, right? You need to get the next node and then you get it and you're happy for, I, I teach the good life class in, in, at universities. And I say, your junior year and beginning of senior year in college, who here was happy? People are like, we just were heads down trying to get into college. I'm like, great. And then you got into college and then what happened then? We were happy for, and it's literally, they say the same thing every time one week. And then boom, onto the next win. And I said, and I say to them, I say, do you think that's a good life that you literally spend it head down, not present, not connecting to people to get the next blue ribbon? You get it with six, eight, 12 months of work. You enjoy it for a week and now you're onto the next challenge. Until you miss, by the way, a blue ribbon, you don't get the promotion, right? And then all of that comes crashing down. And so what got me on this journey was, um, I don't know, probably about 12, 15 years ago, um, I'd had a particularly good exit and I should have been ecstatic and the emails were coming in and what an amazing job. Da, 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 and I was just numb and my adrenals were gone. It was that cortisol test was a little spiky. It was just flat on the bottom took me four years to rebuild it. And I looked around and all of my other friends who were blue ribbon, like really good alpha killers, um, alcoholics, suicide attempts, drugs, you anesthetize in order to, to allow you to be unhappy in that gap for the next win. Right. And that's when I just began to think, God, there has to be a better way. And I was fortunate in that in 2011, I had acceded uh, this great company called uh, Heroic, a guy named Brian Johnson. Um, and he summarized 600 of the greatest books on wisdom uh, from Panishads to Aristotle to uh, The Way of the Seal, Matthew Walker and Sleep, all of it, and created kind of a framework. Of what is the good life based on the Aristotelian eudaimonic framework? Um, and the Navy SEALs are using it now. The Yankees are using it. Now. I mean, you've got a lot of the top organizations starting to to use his heroic framework. And so he really became my Dharma partner, just teaching me what 2,500 years of wisdom have said. And it hasn't changed. I mean, a lot of it has just resurfaced Aristotle. Thomas Aquinas resurfaced it. Victor Frankl resurfaced it. Maslow's hierarchy is literally that. The Seligman positive psychology motion literally has the Aristotelian virtues at the top. Um, and so as you start to lean into, well, what in the hell is this? It's a really simple formula. Um, and I'm like, God, you know, why, why don't we teach, you know, when kids are three this versus, 
you'll get parental approval if you get the straight A's else, you know, uh, you know, and it comes from a place of love usually, but it does, it ends in, it ends in tears. And I was just talking to, uh, I've been talking to a lot of like the star basketball players lately. We've been doing a bunch of events and bringing in like Draymond Green, people like that. All of them have had the same journey I did. And uh, Steph Curry keeps coming up as this amazing, you know, role model. We can talk a little bit later about kind of him and everything I've heard about how he approaches life. And he really is embracing the Aristotelian concept. So it actually seems to be not only enjoying it, but everyone that comes in contact with him also seems to get co-elevated, as Keith Ferrazzi says. Um, so. And so what's the what's the core of the aristotelian ethic there that's that caught on for you it is it's a very simple concept so in a traditional blue pill model that's what um god who was it um out of harvard um he calls it the anxious achiever um in the i think it might be uh brooks's class on happiness at harvard he calls it the anxious achiever and the anxious achiever is at the pinnacle is an external validation. Comparison to others, you focus on the outcome, not the process, and everything is done in honor of yourself so that you look good, that you're liked, that you're accepted, that it's you, 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 you. Um, and by the time, you, you know, it, it, the other is a servant leader model. And the servant model is the Aristotelian concept, which is the highest version of yourself. Um, I heard a great talk. Uh, I was talking just two days ago to Tim Tebow, who's uh, uh, Tebow, who um, has had quite the journey himself, right? Arguably one of the greatest college players that then didn't ring the bell in the pros. But now he's like this iconic figure in sex trafficking. Um, and he talks about God for him, but for him being that highest version. And he tries to get as close as he can to, you know, that this could just be that voice inside of you that simply says, um, Hey, we're not supposed to do this right now. Like we, we could be better. We could be a better husband. We could be a better venture capitalist. We could be a better soccer player. We could be a better what and you say, great. What does that look like? And so the first, so the idea is that, he, uh, that Aristotle simply said, happiness is actually not happiness. It's called eudaimonia. It's good soul, to have a good soul. And I'm like, God, that feels so great. Like, does that feel good to you, like having a good soul? Um, and the idea was every day, if you just close a gap 1%, you're never going to reach this. And by the way, it's going to be this in every aspect of your life, right? As a husband, as a friend, as a this, as a parent, as a whatever. So the first, he said there are four virtues. There are four tools by which you become that higher version of yourself. The first is curiosity and wisdom. And it's a simple question. How can I become the best or a better version of myself as a husband or this or that or whatever? Right. That's the first thing. The second is curiosity. The second half of that is curiosity, which is when something doesn't go your way. Instead of ego saying, I told you so, you suck. We are not enough. You go above the line and you're like, curiosity, huh? What can we learn here? Like, I think I just got some data that can help me become a higher version of myself. Right. So that's the first one. The second one is mastering discipline. Do you actually, once you've said, Hey, 
a better version of my, what's one thing I can do and one thing I can stop the Brian Johnson stuff in, in mastery. Everyone download Heroic. Great book on Arate about to come out. Um, can I close that 1%? But if I've said that, great. Now do I do it? Do I get up in the morning at 6.30? I said, getting up at 6.30 is going to be the thing I need to do. Why are you doing it? Every Thursday, I'm going to go out on a dinner with my my spouse and I'm going to leave the phone behind or, or whatever it happens to be. Do you actually do it? The third is courage. It is scary doing this stuff, right? When you're doing something new, your nervous system is on fire, right? Um, and that was Aristotle's favorite. But my favorite is the fourth one. I think if you don't do this fourth one, everything else is for naught. And that is love. It's in service to someone else, to something higher than yourself. I will, I will tell you that it is physically impossible to have a bad day in service to others. And in fact, you know, just one of the coaching hacks you do, if you're having a really shitty day and trying to get unstuck, just go ahead and help a random person. And you're going to get an oxytocin hit. This is a dopamine, like, you know, the, 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 the dopamine system is a dopamine-based. Oxytocin serotonin is this service servant leader idea. Now, my entrepreneurs, when I've talked to my CEOs about this, they're like, well, that's all great, but what's this love thing? Like, like don't you know I'm in the Darwinian, you know, mosh pit here, right? And I give a, a really simple example. I say, okay. When you get up in the morning, there are two ways you can look at your customer. The first is you need to do whatever you can to pimp them to get them to give you revenue. And if enough of them give you money, you then can get the house in Aspen. And you don't really care because it's for me. It's for me and having the house in Aspen that I am doing this and I need to be a unicorn and I need to have a billion dollar valuation and all this other stuff. The second is you do jobs to be done. You do whatever market discovery you're going to do on the customer and you realize that they're trying to make progress in their life in this domain. They're trying to get back to Tavala, right? Tavala is one of my companies, amazing CEO, David uh, Raby. And uh, the promise is, you know, they send you the food. It's a smart oven. It's all integrated. And you get half an hour, you get amazing food, but you get half an hour back to be with your family because you don't have to cook and you don't have to do dishes, but it's good quality food. Right. And so if you say, okay, I am maniacally going to build a company that allows families to spend as much time together and bond around food and have amazing dining experiences together. And that is what drives you 18 hours a day, which is what drives David. Um, yes, you're going to have rough days where your ego is going to trigger and do all kinds of things. But that's very different than, um, God, I need to get to half a billion in revenue because I'm not going to get the, the valuation I need to get. Right? The approval. Um, and so if you get up in the morning and you're like, I'm out to reduce the suffering, to create more joy, to bring something in my customers' lives. That's what I mean by love. Same with your 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 uh, employees. There are some CEOs I've been with where like, these employees are a pain in the ass. Like, I, if I could do this without them, I would. But then there are others who are like, you know what? This is family. 
I want, I have this ability to like elevate these people to, to guide them to become a higher version. This is what Steph Curry does with all the basketball players on the Golden Warriors, Golden State Warriors. Um, I can co-elevate together. That's love, but that's also competitive advantage because, right, who wants to work for that second company versus the first company? Who's going to hit the products? Who's going to have better product? Who's going to have a more efficient company? All, like, so this is where everything I'm talking about is yes and. This is not um, because this is, quote, the right thing to do or whatever. I, th I think it is, but um, it just makes common sense. One of the people who has influenced me the most by far on my journey is Gay Hendricks. Gay Hendricks wrote The Big Leap. He invented the concept of the zone of genius. And I'm really, really excited to share that he's coming to Boulder, Colorado for a workshop in person on November 8th. And this is going to be a tremendous opportunity to spend time with him and uncover your zone of genius. Take a look at the website, ConsciousEntrepreneur.us, for more information. And I hope to see you there. So this all really came together for you uh, in in the VC world and in the investing world, and you know by the way, even though we were coalescing around the theme of conscious entrepreneur, where we are not talking about you know a bunch of uh, barefoot you know barefoot hippie people <laughs> doing doing small stuff. I mean your background, you know you've been an investor in all sorts of really successful companies, and so you've seen that and you've seen. Um, you know, what it takes to grow a company like Facebook or Coinbase or Dollar Shave Club or, you know, or mm -hmm. talk like really well-known big companies whose products we use every day. And, and I heard you say that this is a competitive advantage. So having awareness and using these tools is a competitive advantage for the CEO himself or herself and the company. And on top of that, I've also heard you say that if you don't do this stuff. So if you don't invest in your well-being, if you don't invest in mindfulness and awareness and consciousness, the way that you've put it before to me is if you don't do this, you will die. And Literally, so that's a pretty black and white view of the world there. And, and we've all been there. It is, um, I, I'm now also, in addition to being addicted to wisdom, I'm also addicted to talking to sports figures that have retired. <laughs> Because I mean, that everyone is needs a hobby, Matt. Everyone needs a hobby. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I am just so intrigued because that's like the entrepreneurial world, right? It is. It, it's scarcity. There's only one slot. There are winners. There are losers. It's very quantitatively driven. And uh, I was talking to one of them uh, yesterday, and he was, you know, a two-time def defensive player of the year in the NBA. And he, he, at one point, he imploded. Absolutely imploded to the point he was suspended for a year from the league. And when he came back out the other side, guess what he embraced? He was doing breath work. He was doing meditation. He had a coach. He had therapy. He was focusing on his teammates. He was like, and now what do you, does he evangelize? This with up and coming players. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so this is no longer the, uh, winner take all megalomaniac. I can do this myself. I'm going to operate in a silo, lone wolf, me against the world sort of thing. He's, I presume, totally changed how he sees himself and his position in the world. Is that right? He almost died. At one point, he said he was driving to a game and he had an anxiety attack that was so hard because ego was like, we've got to, we've got to win. We got to get the whatever. 
that he pulled over the side of the road and he said he just was unable to get to the game for two hours. He just literally missed the game. Um, and we've all had those moments on a, on a Sunday night. And, and by the way, what launched this whole thing is we interviewed 10 years ago, uh, 100 entrepreneurs and said, how do you want your VC to show up to be most helpful? And number one by far, they said, I don't trust any of you guys, but if I could trust you, um, it was who can be there on a Sunday night when the demons are running through my head. And I thought, shit, this is, um, we don't have any of that in our stack right now, um, but it's not easy, right? Um, the, uh, the, the framework I use, by the way, that really seems to resonate with my entrepreneurs is uh, what I borrowed from, you, you know, I've talked a lot about this, which I borrowed it from the Lyme community. My, I have two kids with Lyme disease. And it, it drains you and you say, okay, I've got 10 spoons of energy today. How do I want to spend today? And we'll say, like, do we want to go out to dinner? I don't have the energy. That would be two spoons. I can't do it. Well, that's an entrepreneur, right? They've got only a finite amount of inf- energy. Where do they want to spend it? And so I say to them, hey, you know, it would be a safe assumption to say, like, the Sunday scaries and all this kind of stuff. Um, you probably lose at least two spoons for old shadow work and things that are going on in your own head. You're stuck in the maze, right? You know, as Phil Stutz always talks about, and you can't get out. I said, yeah, that's probably about right. And I said, would you say there's probably some drama and dysfunction in your in your firm where there are unsaids, people aren't taking accountability, there's gossip, there's blame, there's political infighting. And none of it is productive. In fact, just the opposite. It's like an energetic tax. And they said, yeah. I said, how many spoons? So if we're down to eight, I'm trying to get them in here. Here we go. So we lose, if we lose two for internal, I said, how many spoons? And I'll say, that's good for three to four spoons. Like I spend the lion's share. Like when you were a CEO, how often are you spending it on this stuff, Alex, would you say? I mean, the, the, those unspokens and those energy drains can easily consume half of the day. Right. So now we're yeah. down to four. So first of all, that's it. And now let's throw in some board dynamics. Okay. That's good for one or two. So like, is this how you literally want to run a business? In the most Darwinian world where half the companies go under. Half go under. So again, I, this is just kind of common sense. It's like, Again, these entrepreneurs are so heroic and so good at what they do, even with getting punked by their VC and having only three spoons of energy, they still build amazing companies. Like, I don't know about you, but that would literally be like Michael Jordan winning the slam dunk contest with like a 50 pound weight around his waist. Right. Yeah, no, the, the way that I'm, I'm thinking about it is, you know, we're putting all these demands on an entrepreneur and he or she's got 30 percent. They're at 30 percent of their capacity because 70 percent of it is blocked by something else. And so the work of becoming more aware, doing personal work, becoming more mindful, learning to meditate, learning tools and frameworks for communication and so on. Those are about increasing the amount of available energy that I have to do the things that I love. And if I'm not focused on it, then it's just I'm just burning myself down, and that what that's what leads to burnout, collapse, companies going poof, 
you know, and so on if I'm not doing it. So the link here for me is super, super clear. And I really enjoy, appreciate the examples that you're using because they, they come to life. I still struggle. I mean, even when we're doing Conscious Entrepreneur Summit, okay, I still struggle. I have, I have CEOs who I know here in Boulder who are running successful companies uh, and they're doing great stuff. And they look at me and they're like, yeah, but can I really take two days off to go do this stuff? Right? Can I really spend two whole days away from my company to work to do mindfulness and to work on community? And and when I say that, I'm like, man, my website's obviously not working to convey the value here. They're certainly not getting it. So there is still resistance I'm finding out there, even though it seems so fluid and obvious when I speak with you. So it's there is an element. And again, I'm stealing from uh, Jerry Colonna, who's up in Boulder. Probably, you know, I mean, former VC. What I mean, what an amazing human being. Um, uh, and he says, you know, he, he asks these entrepreneurs, do you really believe if you lose your fear, you lose your drive? Because ego is going to tell you, you will die. Right. If you do this, you will die. Now you listen to Stephen Covey, you know, seven laws of, you know, et cetera. And, uh, he says, if I was given, was it, I was given like seven hours to cut a tree down, I'd spend six of it sharpening the blade. Um, right. And then boom, 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 chop away and down goes the tree versus a dull blade. Um, and, and by the way, the, the research, so everything that I've done is, is so deeply embedded in research right now. Um, cause as a VC, I can't, uh, hope's not a strategy, right? Um, and so for example, I'm not going to tell an entrepreneur to do something like, for example, I can't say, Hey, meditate because it seems like it's the right thing to do. There are the, whatever, 10,000 studies on cognitive functioning, decision-making, everything. Get get more sleep, get exercise daily. Like, uh, what do they say? Half an hour of, of like zone five training or zone three training is equivalent to Prozac's, right? Um so all this stuff is so deeply embedded, not just in like it's been around for 2,500 years and, and still surviving, but literally thousands and thousands of university studies um, have supported it. Um, so, but an example I use, I was talking to a really close friend. I've known her for 30 years. She's a CEO, not one of my por CEO portfolios. She's a serial CEO. And she's like, oh my God, I am just so exhausted right now. I said, oh, what's going wrong? What's, yeah, Xtine, what's going wrong? And she said, um, I don't have enough time in the day because I'm getting all the customer uh, uh, customer success calls. I said, well, don't you have a customer success function? And she goes, yeah, but you know, they're not really quite executing uh, the way they're supposed to. And it's just easier for me to take the, take the calls and the emails and, and address them. And I said, but it's killing you. And also... You're not able to focus on culture and strategy and selling new deals or any of that, right? She goes, yeah, you're right. And I said, well, have you actually sat down with them and had a frank, have you created a clean agreement with them, what their job was and what needed to happen and what was not to happen and what was going to happen by what date? She goes, yeah, but you know, I, that's just such an uncomfortable conversation in this scenario because of X, Y, Z and the personality involved and all of this. And I said, well, so it sounds like you've got a lot of unsaids. 
and and I said, when you have an unsaid in a company, uh, a couple things happen. First of all, you start to detach from that person, right? And then eventually you start to resent, right? And then it gets worse from there, right? Marriages are like this, right? If you have a marriage and you have all these unsaids, the unsaids are what often kill the marriage. It's the same thing within a company. And now you're not engaging with the person in product that you need to, or you know the customer service. And what do you do? Because it's an uncomfortable conversation. It's an unconscious, like you're unconscious. You're not intentional. I said, if I were you, I'd have really clean agreements and get rid of all the unsaids. And I'd sit down with them and I'd say, hey, you know what? I just want you to know this is what's going on in my life. I'm getting all these calls and I'm not very happy with it. And the story I'm making up is the following regarding you. And that's not a good story. And I know it's not the true story. Um, and what I want to do is have a clean agreement with you that this behavior will happen, that you will do the following. You'll prevent these coming in. You're going to put these methods in place. Um, and as a result, I'm going to get that time back. I'm also going to feel much better about that, that person. And, and by the way, they probably were unaware of it. Right. That's usually the case. They were unaware of it. And now because of my advice, they're actually better at their job. But that's the kind of drama in energy tax that we talk about. Like uh, the one I, uh, the one that is really interesting, uh, the conscious leadership group is their favorite one, I think, is uh, take 100 percent responsibility and no more. It's a simple move. Hey, wow, that launch did not go well. I will take responsibility for this piece. I could have done this better. And you all, I think, could have done this better. We don't have those because those are uncomfortable conversations. So what we do is we go back and we blame, right? Those assholes over there are not doing their jobs. The problem is the processes that were in place that resulted in this not happening because no one took responsibility, they're not going to work and change them. So that crap is going to stay in the firm on the next product launch. And by the second or third product launch where that crap is still going on, everyone in the firm then begins to believe the firm can't do product launches. Right? Um, so this is when I talk about like you're going from 10 down to three, this is the kind of stuff that is gets you down to the three. No one's talking to each other. No one trusts anyone. Right. And that's what conscious means. Conscious just means I am aware I'm making intentional decisions. Right. I am these aware. Tools, uh, these tools that you're talking about are so they're so resonant with me. So you're just in, in, in those examples you're sharing, you're talking about above the line versus below the line. So identifying mm -hmm. where am I and how am I showing up? And this is the very powerful model from from the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. So mm -hmm. where am I there? You're also talking about the roles of villain, victim, hero, you know, like which one, where am Greater. I in that, trying that drama triangle, right? Oh, it's her fault. Oh, it's my fault. Oh, this, that, you know, someone's stepping in to save the day. We all have natural tendencies that will go in, that will just gravitate back into, right? We'll just go back to, to the, to the, what's natural for us. Uh, and then I also heard you talking about nonviolent communication. So uh, observations, 
feelings, needs, requests, OFNR, which by the way, I learned from Jerry Colonna. Uh, and so, so that is something that, you know, most companies, most leaders do not have these tools at their disposal or they don't bring them up when they need them. They resort to, you know, what's my baseline? And if my baseline is below the line, then I'm blaming, criticizing. I'm not saying the things that I, that I need to get off my chest or I'm not communicating in that way. I'm holding resentment. That resentment is turning into contempt. All that is taking up at least seven spoons of energy, right? For yeah. the average person. And so, so I, I guess the, the question is, um, how, have you seen it be successful to get these adopted at the CEO level, at his or her executive team level, and then percolated throughout the company to really get to their full potential, to really make the change that they can be made? Um, I th so the good news, uh, uh, what I often say is I said, if you want to know what your childhood patterns are in your shadows, become an entrepreneur and within the first week, you're going to know them. Right. So you're going to be in an environment of scarcity, right? Because that's what entrepreneurship is, right? You're not a large cash flowing business. Um, you're going to have surprises. It's going to be difficult. And when that stew occurs and you've lost the cost counter, your CTO left, or I mean, Alex, I mean, how many, like, how many all times that shit happens? Happen? All that shit happens all the time. Yeah. It's like a constant, just, you know, who knows what's going to happen. One surprise after another, you know, one step forward, two steps back sort of thing. And yeah, you're right. Everything just like, boom, starts exploding. So for me, just, just to share some of the things that popped up for me were like conflict avoidance, right? So, yeah. so what are the 10 ways I can do this where I don't have to go have a hard conversation <laughs> or I don't have to really say what's on my mind? Like, how are the ways that I can just whitewash all this stuff with something that came up for me? I Another want to be one, liked. I want to be liked. I want to be liked. I don't want to I don't be like that. I don't want to be that person. Another one that came up for me is like uh, worthiness, unworthiness. Mm, okay. Yeah. And so like, oh, shit. Well, the customer left because I'm not good enough. This team member is upset or this person resigned because I'm not good enough. Whew, boom. Explosion of all sorts of nasty stuff. So. Yes, I've lived through all of those, my friend. And this is where I go back to the Aristotelian concept, that first one, wisdom and curiosity. If that first one is ego-driven, I need to be right, and that's what drives me, then you are going to be in a constant state of not enough, and you're going to use that anger and fear and resentment and everything else to drive you. And you'll be like, yeah, let's get out there, you wussy. Fucking asshole, I can't, dad was right. We're never going to be enough, right? All that stuff comes up. Um, and I would say, by, by all means, if that works, do it. I, uh, by, by the way, I am like, you know, I'm a VC, right? So just, just do it. The only problem is I found it fail 100% of the time. 100%. Because we sprint the marathon. We don't sprint the hill in the marathon. Yes, there are moments where you need fear and anxiety. As I say, if you're in a hospital and the power goes out, yeah, fear's a really good driver at that point in time. People are going to die. Get the generator going, right? But 
you can end up like me at best, which is no adrenals, right? Because you're hitting the adrenal system every single time. You're sprinting the marathon and wondering why at the 13 you know, mile mark, you're absolutely blowing up, right? Um, and so this is where I think people with wisdom, with age, you begin to realize that it really is toxic. And the, the nice thing about the Zs and the millennials is they've seen this a lot earlier than, than we ever did. And so when I have these conversations, it's, it's funny. I almost, I don't even have to do the preamble anymore. They're like, yeah, no, I get it. What, what tools are we going to work on? Let's go. Like I, I want, I want, I want 10 spoons. I don't want three spoons. And um, right now I've already had, a, they're having quarter life crises, right? So. Yeah. Cause otherwise you're spending your time, you know, talking to their wounded child inside and, and not getting what you really want out of them, which is a, you know, fully functional person rocking at their full potential and, and doing great things in the world. And by the way, we just lost a company that was worth $250 million last year because the CEO hid information from us, even though they probably had one of the best entrepreneurial mentors on the board next to them. And they just sought approval in to look right. And so as the as the stuff was occurring over eight months, just hit it, hit it, moved it around. Don't look over there. I'm actually doing an amazing job as a CEO, right? And then next thing you know, we were 60 million in the hole of liquid with a month to go. And wow. like you, you realize we literally over eight months could have taken gotten us to break even. Like this didn't need to happen. Um, and his thing was, I don't want to show weakness. I don't want to show vulnerability. I'm not going to have these conversations. He could have turned to the board member right next to him and said, you've built three iconic companies, literally like in this area. In your sleep, you could help me. Did not. And then as a result, we literally gave the company away. Chapter <laughs> seven. We were either chapter seven or give it away. Wow. And I look at this and I go... These are childhood patterns. You know, there's a saying behind every successful CEO is a five-year-old trying to get their parents' approval. It's true. Just we're not aware the AI is running. Yeah, we're just stuck in, we're stuck in automatic. I've heard you uh, talk before. In fact, at, at the panel at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit, you were talking about some of the superpowers of great entrepreneurs. And, and you were talking specifically about vulnerability which we've just talked about candor, which is telling the truth that we just talked about. And then empathy. We haven't talked very much about empathy. So, so tell me about how those three are alive for you. Yeah. So it's funny when you think about entrepreneurship when I, when I, and I, and I teach entrepreneurship as well at schools, at universities, um, or mentoring at tech stars, uh, at the heart of, of a lot of just running a basic business is this notion around human centric design for your customer. Right. And uh, and if you look at the IDEO, D school, any of the human centric design models, um, they all start with empathize with your customer. Right. Get into their shoes. Um, because what are you building product for if you don't do an empathy map? And so literally I teach how, how do you do empathy mapping? How do you get in your customer's shoes, understand their journey, understand their motion, emotion, understand their moment of struggle, 
and what's really important to them, and then design your product from that perspective. Where you get into trouble is you have technologists that now um, have an amazing technology. They create the technology and they talk about the features and functionality, and then they just push it out towards the, the, the client, the customer, and they wonder why it doesn't sell, right? The client doesn't want 0.5% faster response rate or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that'll affect their effect. But what they what they want is to be able to get, I'm making this up, uh, you know, a uh, an Uber at below 30 bucks to get home to see their family in the most seamless fashion possible, right? We're all just functionally trying to to do make progress in our lives. You know, jobs to be done. So it it starts with empathy, number one. Number two, how do you manage people? If you don't understand your employees and what drives them, how are you going to show up as a leader for them, right? I mean, you could create a prison warden situation, and that's basically what happens. Your alternative to not having empathy for your your workers is you become a prison warden. And and by the way, that that does work, um, and it's exhausting, and it works until it doesn't work, and then it really blows up. Um, and so I think the other thing is, if you want to problem solve, if you want to negotiate, if you want to do anything, what's the first step? Empathy. Get in their shoes. So I go back to, um, empathy and vulnerability. By the way, the beauty of vulnerability, this is a Keith Frazzi does this so well. He does exercises on this. He did it at our CEO summit. He keynoted our CEO summit. And um, he says, when you're vulnerable, you give the other person permission to be vulnerable as well. I would go one step further. If I'm vulnerable and you're vulnerable and we're actually talking about things that are really affecting and influencing us. Now we're making decisions on the stuff that matters. If I don't tell you what is going on inside and you're guessing and you guess wrong, you are going to make decisions that probably could be tragic for the firm or tragic for our relationship or tragic for whatever, just simply because you don't have the right information. But but we're taught that if you don't put the armor on and show any kind of weakness, you will die. Again, remember, we keep dropping back into the amygdala and the reptilian brain and, and all of these things. And, you know, look, we were taught by our parents in the most loving way. Um, the world's a dangerous place and, you know, you need to be careful and thoughtful and you need to be a survivor and you need to, all this other stuff. So I'm not saying go out there and hug trees. I mean, you, yeah, that'll probably get you killed. But what I am telling you is you will die a different death if you don't thoughtfully approach life differently. Um, and by the way, I'm in my 50s now. and what really got me going was I just looked at so many of my friends. And now that I'm getting, you know, spending a lot more time with sports figures, um, this is literally the main topic they're talking about. And because also a number of them uh, uh, also were uh, in the limelight and now they're not, who are they? What are their values? Who are they as a person? Because everything was a dopamine-based system based upon accolades external. We just happen to have like smaller versions of that in our lives. You know, I love that this conversation is is happening. And 
I think the time is ripe for a bigger conversation like this. I think it's time for VCs and the entrepreneurs they fund to have different relationships and for them to operate more as peers or player coach, as you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like to think that this is all happening now and fast. And in reality, it's not happening as fast as, as we would like, but <laughs> you know, we're, we're, st we're starting to get there. And I think this is the magic of what we've done at, at the conscious entrepreneur summit is to have these conversations and to, to bring people like you up here to say, here's how I view the world. Here's how I think about this as a VC, which is very different from, from how, you know, entrepreneurs have heard from others, right? We've, we've, we've gotten completely different lessons um, from other people. Now, uh, Matt, as we as we start to wrap up here, I've got a couple of things I'd love to to dig into with you. And first is, you were at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit. Have you had a chance to define what a conscious entrepreneur is or what that term means to you? So a couple of things. One, um, kudos to you for organizing it. That was a labor of love. I mean, th the amount of effort you put in to pull that together was absolutely amazing. I'm still having conversation at least once a week with someone from that summit. How long ago was it? Uh, it was in June. So it was three months ago, three months ago. Right. Um, and uh, it, it was a, it was just an amazing experience um, at the end of the day. I think a lot, the issue for a lot of people is that they just don't know the alternative. Like when I start talking about the hedonic versus eudaimonic and like, by the way, here's how you actually build an amazing company that is the best of the best, but you're not dying every single day. They always look at me surprised. And then they go and I say, here, just try this one thing. And then they try it and they come back the next day and, and the next day. And then, yeah, right. And, and then they just kind of like, they, they suddenly start going down the path. But if we don't have things like the Conscious Entrepreneurship Summit, if we don't have people talking about this stuff, no one is going to realize that there is a red pill to the blue pill, the, the hedonic blue pill that we've all been trained on. So. Anyway, so huge shout out to you on this. And as I've yeah. said, anything and everything I can do to help you, um, I would love to do. Um, conscious entrepreneur is very simple to me. Um, too many of us live unintentional, unconscious lives. What does that mean? We live reactively, right? We don't feel we have agency over our life. Stuff happens to us. Um, we aren't the architects of our life. Um, we aren't the architects of our company. And what we do is we rely on amazing resources of our own grit and strength and resilience and all these other things to just power through. But the reality is if we were intentional, if we were really conscious about the decisions we were making, um, if we were intentional about how we become higher versions of ourselves and in doing so, suddenly our companies are more successful and we have less effort, we get into flow state. Right? It's all about flow state is what we're really talking about here. Um, that is what a conscious entrepreneur is. A conscious entrepreneur is not someone who's like peace, love, joy, whatever. It's, in fact, I've found probably some of the, the hardest ass people that I've ever come across are in the conscious camp. I'm like, oh, that's stung. <laughs> I was like, you realize if you say that, I need a hug. No, I mean, I'm kidding. I'm the VC too. Um, but no, it is intentional decision-making. You're intentional about what your values and culture are. You're intentional about the purpose of the firm. 
You're intentional about the customers you're going after. You're intentional about the progress they're trying to make in their, their, their decisions. You're intentional about any kind of dysfunction or function that you have within the firm. If, if, hey, by the way, you know what? If you want to have a, a culture of hyper toxic, you know, whatever, great. Just be, in, be, be aware you're intentional about that. You're making that call to sprint that part of the marathon. Great. But what happens is most of us just end up sprinting the goddamn marathon. We're exhausted. We're complaining about how tired we are. We feel like we don't have control over our lives and we're stuck. And why is this important now? We're not coming off of life has a seven to 10 year cycle I've, I've blogged about at somethingventure.com. Um, so um, because of the Fed, we had two cycles back to back. So we're actually undoing two market cycles, not one market cycle right now. And that means it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of reckoning over the next two, three years. Um, and so a lot of people are going, there's going to be a lot of suffering out there. And so the question is, great, can you be intentional about what's going on? Can you make intentional decisions to get through this? Um, and can you, if you're intentional and conscious and feel like you're agent over your own life, as all of this shit is happening, excuse me, I shouldn't be swearing here. If all this stuff is happening, then um, you're going to be more resilient and have more grit. You're going to have more energy and you're going to have less drama. End of story. And so that's a very long-winded way of saying that's what I think a conscious entrepreneur is. They're intentional about everything they do. And as a result, they are architects of their life and they have agency over that life. Thank you. What do you do? What are your daily, weekly, monthly practices to stay in your zone? So are you a um, meditator? Do you do... I don't know. I, I, I assume you basically you probably have a very long list of things that you do. Oh, I need an intervention at this point. If 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 it's been written about, I've tried it. Um, but uh, you know, I think the first thing is I've been really fortunate, and I've been very intentional. Right? Like do we either we either are intentional who are the people we spend our lives around with, um, or it just happens. I have some amazing Dharma partners in my life. People who are also on the journey, they're extraordinary at what they've done, but they they think about these things. And, and we're always testing and comparing and contrasting to each other. Um, so I've been really intentional about who are the people I have around my life. One of them is a guy named Brian Johnson, who's the founder of this app, Heroic, um, which is a great app. Everyone should download it. It's, you know, think of it as Blinkist for 600 of the best books ever written on wisdom and living the good life. And then he frames it into one-on-ones and then he has this whole mastery program he runs where he puts it all into the Aristotelian concept. And it literally is, if you want to know what 2,500 years of wisdom have said, here's what it is. Um, so one is, I've got the heroic app. I pound through that like crazy. But, you know, a lot of the frameworks that Brian talks about are, um, great, what is that one thing you can do to start? And what is the one thing you can stop so you have better work? Start, stop, relationship, start, stop, energy, start, stop. And at any point in time, I have my list of what I'm working on, on those. Okay, so it's constant growth, right? Growth mindset. So that's number one I do. Number two, um, well, number one is the Dharma partners. Be really thoughtful of who are, the, who are your friends around you. Um, I have a coach, uh, a guy named Phil Stutz. You probably saw the documentary on Netflix with Jonah Hill. Um, 
so whether you have a coach, a therapist, whatever, um, it's worth their weight in gold, worth their weight in gold. Um, the, uh, for me, sleep is really important. And I have not, I did not do a good job this week. So it's a train wreck, but you know, this notion of, uh, is probably the number one foundational element you can have in your life that entrepreneurs are getting much better at realizing they need sleep. That is in bed by 10 up at six 30, you know, seven o'clock. Um, I do cold showers. Um, so I'll do a regular shower and then drop it into cold, which is, uh, you know, the whole Wim off stuff. Love that. Um, with kids who, two kids who have Lyme disease, we have very clean diets. Uh, I am not as dedicated as they are, but, uh, you know, sugar-free, gluten-free, dairy-free as much as I can. Um, I, I'm trying to not drink anymore, but, um, I never had an issue with it, but it's just, if I have, you know, one or two drinks, I'm not going to sleep well and I'm probably not going to feel great the next day. Um, and as, as Huberman says, there's no study, and Peter T. the same thing, there's no study that's shown that uh, even wine is is good for you. It is, it's an, it inflames. So, so some things like that. Um, I've been starting to really learn a lot about plant medicine. Um, and I think that is, there's just so much magic coming down. If you look at the FDA trials and all of that right now, um, so excited. Um, and then I'm always reading, always reading. Um, and some of my favorite books, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd tell people Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is unintentionally, you know, he ended up in the world's most extreme research lab on how to thrive in life when it's beating away at you. Um, such an amazing book. Uh, Byron Kate is probably the book I give the most to my uh, entrepreneurs is uh, Loving What Is. And the other one is uh, Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Um, <laughs> you read those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And those are those are those are absolutely, absolutely top. Yeah. And then Pima Children, uh, Comfortable, uh, you know, Comfortable with Uncertainty. Um, Phil Stutz, The Tools is always great. And then uh, The Heroic App is is amazing. So. That's a that's a fantastic list, uh, most of which uh, I'm familiar with and totally agree that those are those are really valuable for anyone who's going along this this journey. Well, uh, Matt McCall, it's been such a pleasure to have you here. I am so impressed with the way that you think about the role of VC. I'm so glad that you are having this conversation and that you are leading uh, us on this path, because what we need is we need more conversations like this. We need more leaders like you. We need more people reframing how VCs and entrepreneurs work together. And so I'm incredibly grateful for your leadership in this area. And it was a really, really fun conversation. Thanks so much for being here on The Conscious Entrepreneur. Alex, you're amazing. Thank you for everything. Look forward to our next talk. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is ConsciousEntrepreneur.us. I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome, full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast.